Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Health Leader Forge is a production of the University of New Hampshire's College of Health and Human Services. Today's guest is Peter Wright, the president and CEO of Valley Regional Healthcare in Claremont, New Hampshire. Valley Regional Healthcare is a health system that includes Valley Regional Hospital, a large physician group practice, a home health agency, and part ownership in a long-term care facility. Peter took an unusual route to becoming Northern New England's youngest hospital CEO, and his experiences have helped shape some of his unique insights into health leadership. Welcome to The Forge, Peter. Thank you. So you're originally from Connecticut, but you went to Linden State College. Where is Linden State College, and why did you choose to go there? Sure. Um, Linden is in the what's called the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. It's actually in the town of Lindenville, but the three northern counties, uh, northeastern counties of Vermont make up the Northeast Kingdom. So I ended up there um, uh, just after high school. Uh, I was uh, somewhat prompted by my uncle, uh-huh. who was also a graduate of, of Linden State, and uh, it was an interesting uh, dilemma for me. I graduated from high school in 1990, actually living in New Jersey, and was confronted with, do I go to school or do I go into the military? And, and where I was from, there was a heavy um, Marine Corps influence. And so I was being courted by a, a Marine Corps recruiter and, and was absolutely enamored with the fact of um, joining the Marine Corps and being a helicopter pilot. And uh, my uncle at the time didn't think that was a good idea given the, the advent of the first Gulf War and flew me up to Burlington and put me in his car and, and sent me over to Linden State where I had an opportunity to take a few classes, spend the weekend there, play basketball with the basketball team, and uh, take a couple of runs at Burke Mountain. And so I came home and said, forget the Marine Corps, I'm going to college. All right. So you studied business administration uh, while you were at Linden. And did you know you wanted to do healthcare administration while you were doing that, or was this something that came after? Not a clue. Absolutely not a clue. I actually went in as an accounting major and within the first semester decided that wasn't for me, and so switched over to business. Uh, Linden has a big ski resort management program, so when I graduated, I ended up in the ski industry through some alumni contacts. But I never knew that I would end up in, in healthcare, really, till almost just before it happened. So, when did you get your first job in healthcare? In 2001, uh, I applied and was hired for the director of marketing and public relations at Copley Hospital in Morrisville which was a part of Copley Health Systems at the time, uh, had, which had 11 different entities. And that was via uh, an alumni friend of Linden who was working there who thought I'd be good in that role. Okay, so you'd been doing um, marketing kind of work prior to coming to there? Or? Actually, I was living two parallel lives. I, okay. I was working in uh, marketing and PR uh, for a variety of different firms, first in the ski industry and then for an organization called the Littleton Coin Company. And I was also a police officer at the same time. Oh, neat. Okay. So I would uh, go to work uh, at one of those uh, business-based organizations in the morning and then put on a uniform and uh, patrol the streets at night. Wow. 
That's an interesting um, preparation for being the director of planning development for a medical group. So what did you, so what was that job? What did, what was involved in doing? I, I started out working, so Copley Health Systems at the uh -huh. time was an 11 um, business entity. Right. And I was working for you know, the largest entity, the hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I grew pretty quickly in that group and the, the CEO seemed to recognize some talents that I have and promoted me to the system level where I worked on uh, marketing and then planning, and, and we put together a strategic plan that essentially disassembled that system, broke uh, the, the long-term care wing off to a separate entity, the mental health organization off to a separate entity, and eventually some of the physician practices into a federally qualified health center. So we took what was a big system and we boiled it down to a little less than half of the number of companies. Uh, and in, as I got involved in that strategic plan, helping uh, helping bring it to fruition, I got involved in government affairs as well through through my public relations work, um, and then that just naturally evolved into um, uh, operations. I, I had a desire. I remember I was in that position for about six months, and I remember driving to work one day, and I was so excited to go to work, and it, and it dawned on me that this is what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Neat. So you spent, uh, you, you stayed there till 2007, and after that you went to be the chief operating officer of the Littleton Regional Hospital. Tell us a little bit about what you did as COO in Littleton. So I'll, a quick jump back to yeah. Copley. When I knew that I wanted to stay in this industry, I got some good advice that said, volunteer, get involved in operations. That's what you need. You need operations experience. So I managed a few physician practices and, and we acquired an orthopedic practice. And so when the opportunity in Littleton came about, it was very heavily focused on working with their multi-specialty physician practice group and growing and developing and improving the systems and drawing on my talents from the ski resort industry about customer service okay. and improving service there. And, and that was a, a big role um, and well, that played a big role in why I went why I went to Littleton, and I think why I was selected. I got to Littleton, um, and interesting, it was the same CEO that was at Copley, so we had known each other for a long time. And okay. uh, you know, there's a great benefit of, about knowing someone and and knowing that you can work well, and a, a lot of symmetry in our relationship. So we did some great work in Littleton, and still going on. Uh, the building of a 66,000 square foot medical office building that uh, that was 75% more efficient than the other medical office building due in large part to it being heated and cooled through geothermal. Oh, wow. uh, an intense um, recruitment. I think at one point we had up to 14 new physicians coming on board in one year. Was the system growing that fast? Absolutely. Littleton really uh, had evolved during that time as a, as a regional uh, provider. So they are a critical access hospital like all the other hospitals up north, but uh, they were really a critical access hospital and a bigger hospital skin. And, and so where most critical access hospitals suffer from lack of services, Littleton was even able to position itself um, as a regional hub because places like Concord or Manchester or Dartmouth-Hitchcock were so far away, up to two hours away, right. that we were able to attract more specialty work, really. So okay. there was a lot of investment in primary care, but also um, an investment in medical specialists and surgical specialists. And, and, and that's how it kind of evolved into what it is today. 
So you mentioned the idea of a critical access hospital, and I know this is a critical access hospital here as well. So let's talk about that for a minute. What What is a critical access hospital? What makes it different? And, and, and why would a hospital want that designation? Sure. In the, in the early to mid-2000s, uh, the federal government recognized that uh, sustaining healthcare in rural environments was critical, and they, they came up with two programs. Um, one was uh, federally qualified health centers, which is really for primary care clinics, and, and that actually came a few years earlier. But the other one designation was critical access hospital. So that is, there are four major requirements. Um, one, you can't have an inpatient census more than 25. So the moment you add your 26th uh, inpatient, you have to write a plan of correction and why did that patient have to come in and um, what are you going to do to get your census down. The average length of stay cannot exceed uh, 96 hours. Uh, you have to be 35 miles away from another hospital. Now that at first blush everyone will say, particularly in the state of New Hampshire, well that's not the case for any of the critical access hospitals except for Upper, upper Connecticut. The fourth was the magic wand of the governor, and the uh, the governor of each state had the right to just bless a hospital okay. uh, as a critical access hospital. And you meet those requirements, and um, what you're able to do is get cost-based reimbursement for your inpatient Medicare and Medicaid patients. Okay. So, and how is that different from what other hospitals get, though? Well, all the other hospitals are, are paid on a... Um, what we call PPS, Perspective Payment System, and uh, they get paid for a, a DRG. So you come in to have your knee scoped. It's a flat fee. You get paid no matter how long it takes. If you're there for a day, well, good for the hospital. If you're there for five days, the hospital really absorbs all that cost um, for a fixed price. At a critical access hospital, if you're a Medicare patient, we would get 101% of our allowable costs. So at the end of the year, we do a cost report with, with Medicare, and some costs they allow and some costs they don't, so it's not everything uh, on the budget. And then they look at those allowable costs and say, all right, Medicare represented 40% um, of your business and Medicaid represented, you know, whatever, 10, 12%, and so, we're going to pay you 101% of those costs for 55 or whatever the total percentage is. Okay. And so we settle those cost reports. They're a couple of years behind. Um, and it, it results in you know, millions of dollars more to the healthcare system. And so as the COO, what, what, um, what were your responsibilities? What, what did you really focus on? Sure. I had responsibilities for three divisions. Uh, all of our employed physician practices as well as the liaison with uh, non-employed uh, physician practices. Uh, our non-nursing clinical group, so lab, radiology, pharmacy, respiratory therapy, um, and our support services group environmental services, engineering, volunteers, and our culinary group. Well, okay. And, but you're not a physician, but you were managing the physician group. Correct. I, I think, so how does that, how does, well, you how does know, that some work? people think that's a, a good thing and some people don't. Uh -huh. uh, and it doesn't necessarily follow the lines that, that you would think. Today, I think that current management practice is, is really a, a dyad or a triad. So I had the administrative responsibilities. You know, today, healthcare is a business, mm -hmm. and it needs to be very closely managed and monitored. 
but we have a, a special group of clinicians that have a very unique and intense set of skills that I don't have. Right. Um, the closest thing I have to it is I was an EMT uh, in high school and college. And so it's a partnership. And you know, like any good partnership, you work together with somebody. And so rather than being a leader that says, you know, this is what you're going to do, you collaborate. So I collaborated with physician leaders and I collaborated with nursing or other clinical leaders. And we took that balance of, you know, what's the right business decision and how does that work clinically uh, and work together to, to make the changes or to grow in the way we needed to grow. So your, how did your experiences, in your opinion, um, in Littleton as the COO prepare you uh, to take the role that you have today? So what did you learn about managing a hospital? Uh, what did you learn about leadership that really prepared you for the role that you took here? Because from Littleton, you then came uh, to take on this role. So. Sure. Um, well, I think it's not just at Littleton. I think mm-hmm. that every step in my career, I learned something that helps me today. Even as a, as a former law enforcement officer, there are things that I learned on the road and and what people deal with before they get to the emergency department mm-hmm. or what they struggle with after they leave. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I take that experience, my experiences from the ski resort industry and even uh, working for the Littleton Coin Company in, in direct marketing. It, it all plays a role in, in what a CEO's job is. Um, obviously, as the COO, uh, I had a lot of the hands-on direct management for operations. But I think the thing that prepared me the most was having a, a great mentor. The, yeah. the, the COO, um, his name is Warren West. He was a CEO who originally hired me in, uh, in Morrisville and then hired me again in Littleton. Felt that I had the potential. And so he mentored me. He gave me great opportunity. He provided me the freedom to take you know, manageable risks and fail mm-hmm. and learn from that. Um, he invited me to meetings and strategy sessions with a medical staff that, that you wouldn't traditionally see for a COO. And as a result, I got about as ready as you can get, which isn't nearly ready to, to take the job. Uh, one of the things I've learned as a CEO is, a CEO is you think you're ready, and then you get there, and it's a whole different story. Yeah. So what... You, you mentioned mentorship, and this is a theme that I wanted to kind of come back to, and, and we will come back to it. You said, one of the things you said was he allowed you to, to take risks, manageable risks. What kind of, uh, of manageable risks could, uh, can you give a specific example of something that you were allowed to do that maybe went a little beyond what you had done before? Sure. Um, I think, you know, something very basic. So in our physician practices, mm-hmm. The traditional model is, uh, you know, a physician medical director and then a practice manager and for every practice. Mm -hmm. And I found that to be very inefficient and uh, allowed itself to breed inconsistencies across the practices. So uh, what my proposal was, was not to have a primary care team, a medical specialty team, and then a surgical team in terms of management uh, nursing support and uh, and physician leadership, but to have uh, a set of of leadership across all the practices, and to really integrate them. Which later on, when we built the medical office building and we brought everybody in, and they were physically integrated, um, turned out to be a, a smart risk to take. So we had 
we had supervisors and leaders that crossed the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So they managed function as opposed to a particular practice. So we had a primary care practice manager and a specialty practice manager, but underneath those two were um, a broad-based spectrum of, of clinical and non-clinical leaders that reported to both of them at the same time. Uh, so we had a, a, a clinical informatics that handled IT integration across all the practices, and they were responsible to the two managers to make sure that everybody was trained equally and that um, the level of, of IT adoption was consistent with what our plan was across the organization. We had an operations supervisor who managed all the non-clinical staff so that a, a front desk receptionist in primary care could easily fill in as a front desk receptionist and orthopedics. And then we had a clinical supervisor whose job it was to manage uh, the competencies and work of all the clinical staff in the same way. Mm -hmm. So a primary care nurse could very easily move over to occupational medicine or to neurology and be able to fill those roles. And so as a result, we needed fewer staff. Um, we gave a, a greater level of professional fulfillment to the staff that were there and the, and the propensity for growth. And it was a, a big risk that was not supported by the medical staff until they saw it work. Okay. Until they saw that, well, this is great because when my medical assistant is out, then I can have a medical assistant from another group who knows how to support me and I don't have to go thin for the day. Nice. So, so you're, you proposed this to your CEO at the time and he said, yeah, you can, you can give that a shot. Well, he gave me the hairy eyeball at first uh -huh. and, uh -huh. and uh, you know, it, wasn't, it was a rough road and it wasn't a perfect execution. Mm -hmm. um, there, there were certainly pitfalls and you know, in our position, you have to listen to your medical staff. And so when the medical staff pushes back, uh, you have to listen to that and, and take measures accordingly. So it was an up and down, but the end product and how they function today is far more efficient mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and more productive. And in the end, I think the medical staff is uh, satisfied with the level of support that they get and, and the, the level at which allows them to function. So they, they can be better providers in their own mind. So you saw this as a risk. You mentioned it's a, it's a, it was a manageable risk. You, you, um, and so, and this was one of the things that, that you said the CEO was good at doing as a mentor, was giving you the opportunity to take these manageable risks. Sure. How do you identify a manageable risk? Uh, how, how, would you, how would you define that? I think when there's a problem, we come to the table with a traditional, well, this is how we should solve it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been through several creative thinking exercises, which is, you know, come up with the traditional answers and then keep pushing. And you come up with the ridiculous answers. And once you get through that exercise, you start merging the ridiculous with the traditional, and that fosters a lot of thinking at the creative end. So how do we make the ridiculous palatable? How mm -hmm. do we merge them together and, and come in the middle and find solutions that are, that are more creative than just, well, here's a great idea, let's just do this. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about Claremont before we come uh, to talk about your, your current role. Um, Tell me a little bit about, about the town. Uh, what do you know about the history, the demographics, 
um, some Claremont's of the a fantastic city. It's one of the few designated cities in the state of New Hampshire. Uh, it's two, it celebrated its 250th birthday this past summer. Um, it it has a very diverse population. We have uh, you know international business folks here. That the North Country Smokehouse here in Claremont sells uh, smoked meats around the world. Uh, we have a variety of other businesses th that um, do work and business around the country. Crown Point Cabinetry sells kitchens and, and cabinets to people who walk the red carpet in Hollywood. And we also have the other end of the spectrum, uh, some of the most economically disparaged people in the state. You know, Sullivan County is the second most economically disparaged county in the state behind Coas. And we have our challenges. And, and there's a, a decent group of folks in the middle who are, you know, what I think we would classify today as the, the working class. So it's, it's very diverse. And that is a blessing in terms of the, you know, how you, how you work here and how you collaborate. Diversity is always a good thing. Uh, and difficult. Difficult as a, as a service provider who needs to be able to serve all those constituencies in a way that's meaningful to each of them. So every time we provide a service, we have to provide it consistently clinically, but more custom tailored to meet the individual's needs. Okay. Um, hospitals are often a major economic engine for small towns. So coming back to the kind of the community as an ecology, uh, how do you, as the CEO of the area's hospital, interact with the business, nonprofit, and government leaders in town? That's a part of my job that I think I take perhaps the most seriously. Uh, I believe that we're here to serve the community, and it's not just to provide healthcare services. We are part of the economic development engine that that needs to happen here, and so. Uh, I'm very involved with uh, things that go on in the community college. I'm very involved with the city council. I get involved with business groups, um, and I, I make myself available 24-7 to the business leaders to help solve their problems. And, and people say, well, why are you going to help businesses solve their problems? It's pretty easy. Uh, if I help them solve their problems, then they stay and grow and attract more businesses. And the more businesses that are here, the more people working in our community have insurance and and can get you know better access to health care and stay and then they become well and yeah. the community improves in its wellness and it kind of spirals from there so yes. I very I take a, a definitely a macro approach to it okay so this is a, a rural community um, uh, hospitals require specialized skilled uh, employees how do you find the skilled workers that you need to fill the roles that you have here at the hospital. That's a challenge. System. Yeah, that's a challenge. In some positions, it's, it's quite easy to fill. In others, um, it's incredibly difficult. So we support, for example, the, the local schools. River Valley Community College has a great nursing program. And we make sure that that program thrives because we'll benefit from it. They um, just merged with Lebanon College. And so Lebanon College had a, a rad tech program. So we obviously support that program. We're a huge economic engine. We, we represent, um, you know, we have 400 employees. We have a $23 million payroll that gets turned over several times in terms of its economic impact in the community. So we're, 
we're not only important to the health of the community, we're important to the economic vitality of the community, which is difficult because the cost of healthcare needs to come down. Right. Um, we act as our own educational institution often. So uh, my mantra has always been we need to hire the right people. That doesn't necessarily mean they have the skill set that we need. It means they have those infamous soft skills that we talk about all the time, that they understand customer service, that they understand ethical principles and, and have a high potential for uh, emotional intelligence. And if they don't have the technical skill, we can teach them that. So I have, in my past, I have hired uh, real estate brokers to be physician practice managers. Um, I have hired uh, car salesmen uh, to, to be functional managers because they understand what needs to be done. You know, you said to me earlier, how can I be the, or you inferred earlier, how can I be the CEO if I'm not Absolutely. a clinician? Absolutely. Um, I don't need, I don't take care of patients. Right. So to a certain extent, I don't need to know how to take care of patients. What I need to know is how to support the people who do. And often that training doesn't come when you go and get a clinical degree like a rad tech, an RN, a physician, a nurse practitioner. Okay, great. So um, is the entirety of the Valley Regional Healthcare System nonprofit? Is it a nonprofit entity? Let's see. Um, yes and no. Valley Regional is a 501c3 um, nonprofit entity, and our clinics, our hospital, and our home health and hospice agency are all nonprofit. We are a, a member or a partner in, in a company called Summercrest, okay. which is a for-profit independent and assisted living facility that also has a memory care unit in Newport. We own 30%. Okay. Um, and the corporate structure of that is designed so that the tax liability doesn't fall on the organization itself. It falls back on the members. So our 30% comes non-taxed. The 30% that's owned by a private group of business investors, they're taxed at whatever their tax rate is. Okay. What does it mean for a system or hospital to be a nonprofit? What is a 501c3? So a 501c3 is a, is a class designated by the Internal Revenue Service that means we're not only non-for-profit, but we're a charitable organization. So people can donate money and uh, claim that as a deduction on their taxes. Uh, nonprofit is, is pretty easy. We, we all function in the same way. It's business. Uh, and at the end of the day, our job is to, uh, you know, be as efficient and as profitable as possible. The, the difference in a nonprofit is the, the margin at the end does not flow through to an owner, investors, or stockholders. It comes either back to the organization for reinvestment in capital equipment or in um, building a better financial position on our balance sheet, uh, or it goes to reducing the cost of services in the future. So the, the more financially stable we are, the less likely we are to raise our rates. Okay, so if there's no shareholders at the end of the day getting uh, dividends back because you're a nonprofit uh, charitable organization, who do you report to? So I'm going to take that a little bit further. We don't have stockholders or shareholders, but we do have stakeholders. Okay. And I 
practice my craft with the idea that the entire community are our stakeholders. I execute this job by saying, you know, they own the hospital. It belongs to the community. But legally, we have a, a board of, uh, of corporators, of overseers, and all you need to do is, is volunteer and sign your name to a piece of paper and voila, you're an overseer. You have to participate in a couple of meetings a year that are informative. From that group, we glean um, trustees. And uh, the trustees are just that. They are entrusted to uh, govern over the organization. They set policy. They uh, make adjustments to the bylaws when needed. And uh, they are chiefly responsible for the quality of the organization. And their other major role is to hire and uh, manage and evaluate the chief executive. Okay. So, so I work for a board of trustees, which currently uh, is 21 people from our community, and I get an evaluation like everybody else at the end of the year, and that determines whether I continue in my job or I, I go looking for something else. All right, all right. And it sounds like you're doing a great job in terms of, of, of meeting the uh, uh, needs or trying to meet the needs of your stakeholders you know, as well, so that's excellent. So let's talk a little bit about the organizational structure of uh, Valley Regional Healthcare. Uh, who are your direct reports within the system? And then we'll talk about the hospital specifically, but kind of at the system level. Sure. Um, My senior management team, with one exception, has system-based responsibilities. So okay. uh, Tim Clark is my chief operating officer. Uh-huh. He oversees physician practices. Uh, non-nursing clinical services and support services. Tim happens to be uh, a registered nurse. Uh, Marty Burns is our chief nursing officer. She oversees all of our nursing-specific departments, med surge, ICU, emergency department. Um, She also oversees our quality improvement, corporate compliance, and risk departments. Um, Shelly Bragg is our director of human resources. Rolf Olson is the director of uh, marketing and community engagement. Gene Shaw is our chief financial officer. Uh, Oliver Herford is our chief medical officer. And Karen Baranowski is uh, the executive director of Connecticut Valley Home Care. So that's the only person who, who has just, just home, one hat. home health and hospice. Okay. So tell me a little bit about, let's, let's talk about um, home health and hospice. What is, what is that organization? What do they do? In short, they're the future of healthcare. Oh, okay. Uh, in my opinion, um, keeping people out of a hospital is the future uh, of where we're going. Um, Connecticut Valley Home Care is a, is a home care agency, so oftentimes people will be discharged from the hospital but need continued care, and home health is the agency that nurses and LNAs and techs visit you in your home, take your blood pressure, uh, maybe check your sugar levels, uh, talk to you, counsel about diet, exercise, follow up to make sure that the things that you should be doing, you're actually doing to stay out of the hospital or or out of the need of a, a visit to the physician's practice office. Okay. How does that fit into the compensation for the organization? It's a separate billable service. So okay. right now we're still in the what we call the fee-for-service canoe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for everything that we do, we get paid for. For most of the things we do, we get paid for. So every time we do a home health visit, that's a billable visit. Uh, we have a hospice program as well, which is taking care of uh, folks near the end of life and making sure that they uh, stay comfortable and that the quality of their life uh, remains high as they near the end. 
Um, those are those are billable visits as well, billable care. Sometimes uh, we we have folks who just have a, a belong to our homemaker program. Uh, this is a, a lower technical skilled program. Homemakers don't necessarily have clinical skills, but they help folks go grocery shopping. They help folks clean their house. They help prepare meals. They they do whatever they can to to help folks stay independent um, and in their homes. We know that the the more someone is independent and the more they stay in the home, the longer they live, the higher their quality of life, and actually the the less that they'll draw down on on the health system. Interesting. Okay. So that's the one standalone officer that reports to you. You mentioned your COO oversees the physician services mm-hmm. portion. So are the do the are the physician services provided? Is there a sort of a physician group? Is there some? How does the how are the physician services organized? We have a what would be best classified as a multi-specialty physician practice group. So we have primary care physicians, some medical specialists, and a group of surgeons, who um, most of which are employed. Uh, by our system, okay. some of which are uh, on contract. For lack of a better expression, we lease them from the academic facility in the oh, area, okay. Dartmouth Hitchcock. So, our, for example, our urologist, mm-hmm. he's here two days a week. While he's here, he's a Dartmouth Hitchcock physician, so we bring that expertise, but he works for us. And so we bill for those services instead of Dartmouth. Okay. So folks can get the expertise of the academic medical center in the locale of their community hospital and at the, the billing rate of the community hospital. Okay. Nice. Um, so your COO manages this group. How is it, how is it separate? How is it integrated? You know, for a long time, they were very separate. They were treated as two different businesses. We used to have uh, separate P&Ls. We treated them like two different companies. And that's really not uh, what we've learned over time is not, not the best way to do that. In addition, there's another designation called provider-based, uh, which it provides enhanced reimbursement in a rural area for critical access hospitals who employ physicians that treats them like a department of the hospital. Okay, and and that's really what we try try to do organizationally is say they are a department like radiology, and so they get the same time and attention and focus most of the time. We also try to we understand that the the pace of the environment and physician practices is different, and the the way they function is different. So we try not to put a, a square peg into a round hole. Okay, so it's it's complicated. Um, you know, where we have lots of regulations. And folks who like to tell us how things should be done, and so meeting those expectations and meeting the expectations of the patients can sometimes be a challenge. So most of your physicians, you said, are employed by the hospital or leased. As you said. Most of them, yeah, <laughs> contract. Yeah. It's a weird, it's a weird uh, expression. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, yes, most sense. of them are. We still have some private practitioners in the community. We have a, a dermatology group in the uh-huh. local community who's private practice. We have a. Uh, a three or four primary care providers who are in private practice. So we support that model any way we can. Just because they're not employed doesn't mean they don't get support from us in some way. So we are by law allowed to include them, all of our medical staff and our marketing efforts so that when you see um, an ad that lists all our medical staff, you really won't know that who's employed and who's not. It's, It's what services are provided in our community. So the folks who are not employed what is their relationship to the hospital in terms of um, 
what privileges do they have in the hospital? What can they do? Uh, how does how do you support them, as you were saying? So that, I'm glad you brought that up and, and used the term privileges because there's a distinct difference between who employs you and who writes your paycheck and having privileges at the hospital. So part of the process that we have here to be a member of the medical staff is you have to be credentialed. And uh, credentialing is a, a lengthy process that validates your training and experience and, and previous employment to ensure that you're a quality provider. We need to make sure that the, the people that we allow to practice medicine in our community and affiliate with our hospital um, are competent and uh, they apply for privileges and, and when they're granted privileges, which are ultimately approved by the Board of Trustees, they are then allowed to order tests, admit patients to the hospital, do surgery, certain procedures. They, they basically have access and it's a partnership unlike really any other business where um, you, know, you take a, a university, the, the faculty provides a unique service, but, but they're employed you know, by the university. For us, the medical staff serves in a, in a very similar role as, as faculty do uh, in that they are somewhat independent, um, but some of them are employed and some are not, so it, it creates a very interesting um, dynamic about how the relationship works. And for many, many years, um, it has been the, the number one difficulty of hospital administration is how to maintain a positive relationship with medical staff. Oftentimes, um, we're motivated in different ways. We, um, we have different things that are important to us. Uh -huh. And uh, that can, by the nature of, of that work, produce tension. And how do you work with those? How do you work through those uh, tensions? As you uh, like you would in any other environment, you, you take the opportunity to know your medical staff as individuals, as people. You try to understand what they value, what's important to them. You, you approach every difficult situation with the first tenant, which is, I'm fairly certain that this individual didn't come to work trying to ruin my day. That there's something important to them and it's, and, and we're not on the same plane. So how do we get, to the same level and how do we communicate effectively so I know what's really important to them, they understand what's important to me and the organization and we, we approach whatever problem we're trying to solve in a win-win in a scenario. How do we get to a point where the resolution will be something that they appreciate and can live with and can so with me, and can so, so can we, excuse me. And so like any negotiation, it means you're going to get a little and you're going to give a little. Okay. Looking at the hospital specifically, how is the hospital structured in terms of management structure? So you listed a, a, a group, your, your direct reports. Give us a sense of kind of if you were going to draw an org chart, what, would, what are the big kind of moving parts of the hospital? We're a pretty flat organization okay. in that I just told you about my senior management staff. Yes. They have managers and directors that, that either manage a department or multiple departments, and then there's the frontline staff. Okay. And, and that's, that's pretty much it. So we have, um, it, under the chief financial officer, mm -hmm. um, we have a director of revenue cycle. She manages the um, billing team, the mm -hmm. coding team, mm -hmm. and the medical records team. You know, everything to do with, with billing and collection. We have a controller who manages our accounts payable, 
our payroll and our budgeting process. We have a materials manager who, who manages what we buy and where we buy it from and all the contracts that go with that. Um, so, th so those managers and directors report to the CFO and under those folks are the rank and file staff that get it done every day. Okay. Um, so speaking of, of the rank and file staff, how many people are employed by the hospital? Roughly, it changes, uh, you know, on any given day, but it's it's about four hundred, okay, um, which is about three hundred and twenty full time equivalents. Oh, FTEs. Okay. Okay. So it's a big team. Uh, how many beds does the hospital have? We're licensed for twenty five, but we only staff for twenty one. Okay, and what is your average daily census? How many people do you typically have in the hospital at any given time as patients? I think if you look over the course of a year, it's probably around 13. Okay. Uh, there are days, you know, the first 12 days of February, we were full or near full every single day. And there's been days when I come to work and we have six patients. <laughs> okay. Um, what services do you primarily admit for? What's getting done here in Claremont as opposed to, say, going over to Lebanon to the to the medical center? We provide the frontline acute, uh, low acuity uh, healthcare. So cellulitis, infections of, of a variety of sorts, uh, the flu, pneumonia, um, surgery. We do uh, lots of surgery here. Uh, orthopedic surgery, we do joint replacements, we do knee scopes, we do shoulders, carpal tunnel release. Um, we have, uh, in general surgery, we, we do uh, hernia repair, we do gallstones, um, we do appendectomies. Um, and those are the, the basic stuff. We do more complicated surgeries in, in neurology uh, and OBGYN. Um, so most of the stuff that, that the average person thinks about, that you hear about on the street, if you will, we do. What we don't do is the real heady stuff. Anything to do with the brain, uh, any complicated neurological uh, disorders. Um, we only do the very basic of, of neurology. What are the uh, uh, share of the hospital's patients that are Medicare and, and Medicaid uh, payers? Their payers are, are, are Medicare and Medicaid. So if you look at any particular service line, if you looked at primary care or rehab, it might be different, but globally, about 40% of our patients are Medicare, about 12 to 15% are Medicaid, okay. and then the balance, um, another 10% or so are what we call private pay, which those are the three financial classes that we categorize um, often together because they're the most challenging financially. Okay. You know, Medicare, at times pays cost, often is below cost. Medicaid is substantially below cost. And uh, self-pay often results in bad debt and write-offs, probably to the tune of 90% of people who come in on a self-pay status don't end up paying the bill. Okay. How does having 50 plus percent uh, government pay affect the way you organize your services um, uh, uh, and manage kind of the financial uh, status of the organization? It makes it very challenging. Um, you know, when you have 
60, 65% of, of your constituency that uh, is, whose services are paid for at or below cost. It, it means that we're operating in a deficit for that service and we need to figure out a way to balance it out. Um, so, you know, that's why insurance premiums are, and, and our hospital isn't really dramatically different than other hospitals in New Hampshire or Vermont. Um, it, it does fluctuate. There are certain places like, you know, in Nashua, uh, St. Joseph's Hospital has hardly any Medicaid whatsoever and very little Medicare. It's a big commercial insurance because the, the population of Nashua is very heavily, you know, 24 to 65 when they when folks have commercial insurance. So um, there are extremes in the community, but uh, or in the state, but it makes it difficult for us, uh, you know, and it means we rely even more heavily on folks who have commercial insurance to to balance that book. It's called cost shift yeah. in the political arenas, which basically means the folks with insurance pay a larger price than the folks without and. And our financial model has come under attack for many, many years uh, because of that. And the business community has, has, you know, pushes back as they should. So let's let's shift gears and talk a little bit about kind of strategic planning and, and strategic thinking. What is the value proposition for Valley Regional, both as the, the healthcare system and the, and the hospital? What makes it unique? So that's a great question. We have six hospitals within 35 miles of Claremont. Back in the day, it was just proximity. We're the closest come to Valley. Healthcare has is, is definitely fall victim to uh, consumerism, which is a good thing. And our customers are becoming ever more discriminating about how they pick those services. We, as you pointed out earlier, we're not in the business of competing with Dartmouth-Hitchcock. They're an academic medical center and they provide a very high level of service. Our benefit is that we're small. And so just the same way the, the mom and pop store was on the corner where they, they know who you are and they know what you like and you're treated as an individual and not a number. That's where Valley Regional is really going to excel. We, as I tell new recruits and as I tell our managers when we meet quarterly, we have to give people a reason to choose to come here because they can choose to go wherever else. It used to be quality. You used to be able to say, well, we provide better quality. And, and you know, the reality is quality is really a leveling factor. Everybody is pretty much following best practices. And the quality of care is largely in the upper valley on an equal playing field. There's always some, some adjustment. So for us, it's about service. And we're focusing on providing really good service and treating people as an individual. If you, if you go, go out on the floor and talk to a patient, they'll tell you that we, we, don't, we don't treat patients. We treat our friends and our neighbors and our family and our coworkers. And, and that's, that's the value proposition. What synergies are accomplished by having a system versus standalone organizations. You talked about a, a organization where you were worked, where you um, kind of took apart a system that had been in place or, or slimmed it down quite a bit. So you're currently overseeing a, 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 a small system. If, if there's synergies at a smaller level, why not get to be an even bigger system? Why not join up with Dartmouth-Hitchcock, which seems to... Uh, we should. 
should. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, the future of healthcare, there are some that speculate that there'll be 20 major healthcare systems in the country in, in the not too distant future. We talk about in the upper valley banding together to uh, collaborate on, on services and, uh, and expand our audience. Right now, we, we consider our service area Sullivan County. This is a relatively small geographic area with a, with a broad breadth of service. We need to in, invert that. We need to look at our, our service area in a much bigger way, the upper valley, the western edge of New Hampshire but narrow our service line. We, we can't take the shotgun approach of doing everything for everybody anymore. We need to find two or three things that we're gonna be very, very good at and, and follow best practice and be the best clinically, but also be able to do that at low cost. And the only way we're gonna do that is to partner with all of the six other hospitals in the Valley and, and start forming a system and start specializing. And Dartmouth isn't going to do it alone. Dartmouth is talking to UVM and Maine Med and Eastern Maine Medical Center, and they are already collaborating on a few data analysis projects. But you can start to see where the potential for a big system for northern New England could very easily come together. Wow. Okay. Well, let's shift a little bit and, and talk about professional organizations. So when did you get involved in the American College of Healthcare Executives? And how has that been important to your career? Let's see. I joined uh, my first hospital in 2001, and so I became a member of ACHE in 2002. I took a couple of their courses, um, found their education to be really solid, and then was invited to a meeting of a, a new chapter, and it was 2003, I think, we started the chapter system. And uh, I became involved in a chapter and went to the meetings and, uh, and really embraced the three major elements of ACHE, which are education, um, networking, and career advancement. And uh, I, I met some folks. I ended up uh, joining a group to study for the Board of Governors exam to, to become an ACHE fellow. I got involved in, in the chapter board, served as the uh, president for two years, um, and just finished uh, 11 years on, on the board. And um, I recently also served as the ACHE regent for New Hampshire and spent some time serving at the national level. It's a fantastic organization. I can absolutely say without a doubt that um, I would not be in my position today had it not been for the the networking and the mentoring that I got from uh, people within ACHE and the continued exposure to continuing education. Um, and for that matter, um, you know, I met the love of my life through ACHE, so it's a, it's, a, it's a great organization and my story is, I think, a really good one. Great. So let's talk a little bit about leadership. One of the things I noticed um, uh, on your LinkedIn profile is that you have a, a fairly lengthy discussion about your personal vision, your personal mission, and, and your personal values as an individual. Why, I'd like you to talk about that for a minute, and why did you choose to share those on LinkedIn, uh, you know, fairly publicly? Sure. Uh, that was an exercise I went through in graduate school to come up with our own vision, mission, and, and core values. And I felt that it was important to, to do that. It helped me define who I wanted to be and, and what value system that I was going to subscribe to 
and I use that in, in my interviews. I, I look at the vision and mission and values of the organizations that I interview with, and if we don't match, then I don't progress in that interview. Um, at one point, I did have the you know side by side comparison of the organization and my personal posted in my office. I don't know where it went, but um, I think it's important. It sets the tone that if you don't match the values of the organization, then you shouldn't be here. And I think it's something that you need to be incredibly transparent about so that people understand who you are and what you stand for so they know for lack of a better expression, what they're getting into when they when they decide to meet you or do business with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm somebody who holds transparency as perhaps the most important value. You know, we're very transparent with our board, our medical staff, our leaders, and the organization about what's going on and why. And and putting it out there on and LinkedIn makes sure that everybody that I'm connected with holds me accountable to that. And and that's a good thing. I'd, I'd never seen it. I thought it was a, it was a really interesting thing to do, and I like I like the way you explain how you're you're using it. Let me ask you about leadership. What do you think makes a good leader? What kind of behaviors or characteristics make a good leader, and and how do you personally aspire uh, to those behaviors and characteristics? Hmm. To me, leadership is is all about helping people understand that they're more capable of doing things than they believe they are. It's really helping others reach their maximum potential. It's setting that vision and and then working with everybody to ensure and make them believe that we can get there. And not get there because I tell them to. I mean, there's a difference between me as a manager and, and what I give directives. This is what we're gonna do. This is what we're gonna spend as a manager. As a leader, it's inspiring people to, to live beyond that potential so that they can do more than what we plan and, and really reach their, their own potential within themselves, um, which often means helping people recognize that maybe this isn't the right place for them or the right business to be in. I, I remember distinctly uh, a practice manager I was working with and I, you know, I said, what do you want to do? And he says, well, I'd like to be sometimes, sometime be a practice director and manage the whole group. And I said, no, no, no. What do you really want to do? What makes you happy? What, what fuels you inside and, and makes you smile? And, you know, it was a big leap of faith for him uh, at the time. But he said, well, I want to be a vet. And so we reached out to some farmers that I knew and we got him on a farm and he went to vet school and um, you know it was, it was helping him achieve what was important to him and, and people say, well why would you do that? You lost a, a good practice manager. And I said, I did. But he was only gonna be a good practice manager. He was never gonna be a great practice manager because he didn't have the passion for it. And so, um, you know, Leadership is having those, those honest conversations with people. It's inspiring them and holding them accountable at the same time. It's supporting them and knowing them as an individual, but then pushing them beyond what they're comfortable with so that they can grow. Okay. So how, how do you grow leaders in your organization then? How do you, and what are your, and kind of what are your expectations for mentorship within your organization? 
I, I always look for people who are creative. Okay. Um, you know, there there are people looking to advance, mm -hmm. and then there are people looking to to do great work, and you you have to treat them differently. Uh, people are looking to advance. Often, you have to put on the brakes and say, "Slow down." It's it's more important to do what you're doing well than to do it quickly and then get on to the next experience so that you can build your experiences so you can grow. Uh, and then there are people who are just in their role and they're very happy to be in their role, but they want to be the best. And those folks I always look to and, and see what potential they have to grow and take on new, new adventures. And uh, oftentimes... It's, it's a really fun experience to watch somebody grow and to give them new tasks and new challenge and have them work out of the box and take risks on them um, and, and then watch them grow. The, the, the leader that worked for me at Littleton who ended up taking part of my job after I left uh, was a can-do all the time. Absolutely, we can get that done. And you know, he would work late and, and try to resolve problems and, and was always very good about, I, so I can't resolve the problem, I need help. And, and that's how I knew he was always going to go far, is, you know, he knew what his limitations were. He wasn't afraid to ask for help, but he wasn't afraid to take risks, and he was a good communicator, and his staff was always upbeat and happy. Um, it didn't mean they liked everything. Mm -hmm. You know, there were certainly things that they objected to, but because of his leadership and his potential, um, he helped grow people and uh, he kept them well informed. And there was no doubt in my mind when I left that he was going to advance and take over a, a big part of what I was doing. Uh, and and he's doing great. So is that an important part of being a effective leader? Is is being able to grow people, and is that something you're looking for? Uh, when you're, cause I don't think you're, for every leader, no. You're I, a leader of leaders. You're not, you're not, you, your direct reports are not the, the frontline people. Right. You're, you're, and often that's harder because you're, you, you know, a good leader, I think, needs to be able to understand and, and accept and work with people who are smarter than they are. Mm. And, uh, you know, grow them and provide opportunity for them to grow perhaps beyond you. And that's difficult to do sometimes. I mean, every leader, every human being has got an ego of some sort. It might be a small, tamed one, but it's there. And I, I very firmly believe that you just look for people that have potential. And, and you help them with your experiences and let them grow on their own. It's not a formula that you follow that, that well, this is what I did. Um, it's always about asking questions and provoking thought and making them, whatever direction they're going, making them stop and at least look in the other direction. You know, they might be doing the right thing and going in the right way, but they'll never know that if they don't evaluate the whole spectrum. You know, I, I tell people, if you're doing everything right, then you're not learning. You learn by, by making mistakes. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a great story that I, I like to tell about a... A, a gentleman who was working in a business and uh, made a, a monumental mistake, cost a company a million dollars. And he was a pretty smart guy and, and, you know, goes back to his office and starts packing things up. And the CEO walks by and sees him packing his boxes. And he says, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm not stupid. I just cost this company a million bucks. 
I'm not going to make a big fuss. I'm going to pack up my stuff and I'm going to leave. And the CEO says, over my dead body, I just spent a million dollars on your education. <laughs> and it's a good point because that, that individual is never, ever, ever going to make that mistake again. And probably everybody who worked for that company at that time will never make that mistake in their career. So, uh, you know, I teach snowboarding on the weekends and I tell my kids, if you're not falling, then you're not learning. You know, you have to learn how to fall and you have to learn how to get up and you have to learn what it feels like just before you fall so that when you recognize that, you can make a move in the future to avoid it. But if you don't fall to begin with, you'll never, you'll never be great. Nice. Um, so do you, you've mentioned that you had several mentors, particularly um, uh, the person who hired you to be COO. Uh, uh, do you have mentors now? Do you have people you call on to say, hey, I'm thinking about this, or I'm, I'm trying to puzzle through this issue, or you know, all the what time, do, what should I do next? Yeah, all the time, in, in healthcare and outside of healthcare. Okay. Interesting, uh, Mr. West, who was the CEO I worked with for 12 years, he threw my resume away at first. And it wasn't until my good friend reached in the garbage and pulled it out and put it on the table and said, just interview him. I remind him of that every year <laughs> on the anniversary that he hired me. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, absolutely. You, you need mentors. The, the, the one thing that I'm always surprised about in this position is how lonely it is. Mm. It is a very lonely position. And unless you've done it, you can't really truly understand it. I thought as a COO that I knew exactly what it was going to be about and that I could do it. And what I didn't realize is, is all of the confidence I had in, in the way I executed my job as COO was backed up by the safety of a good CEO, that he provided a safe environment for me, and so I felt confident. And, and so when the buck stops at your desk and you have 21 bosses who you know, their objective is to do right by the community. And so the moment they cease to find value in you as their chief executive, you're gone. ACHE does a study every year. CEO turnover is about 20%. One in five CEOs will, will not be in their position next year. Um, and, and so if you think of that globally, it means that they only stay in their position for five years. Well, at five years, you're just hitting your stride. So... I have uh, certainly Warren, who's been a mentor of mine for the better part of 14 years, um, a, a wonderful CEO and founder of a company called Strategies. His name is Neil Dukoff, who I have known since I was nine years old, and mm-hmm. it largely taught me everything I know about general business. Um, I call him on a regular basis. My peers in the state. You know, just at other critical access hospitals, sometimes I call up and I, well, what the heck do you do with this? I, I'm still new in, in my tenure. I've only been a CEO for two years. So it means you have three more to go before you get. Correct. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> <laughs> don't think, I don't think about that every day. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I'm, I'm the youngest CEO in northern New England as best as I can keep track, which, which means that I need um, lots of advice. Uh, and so, you know, I'm very fortunate that I get to travel uh, in my job uh, and meet lots of different people in the healthcare industry and outside the healthcare industry. And um, and so I, I take every relationship and, and hold it precious. 
everybody's got a, a value, a valuable insight. And what I've come to conclude is that it's not one person's opinion that, that helps me do my job. It's the culmination of everybody's opinion that really helps solidify um, when I need some support. Thanks. Uh, do you have relationships with junior executives outside of this organization? So other hospitals, people that call you as a, as a mentor? Yeah, absolutely. Um, some of them have more experience than I do, but I think the way that I got into this business is so untraditional that I, uh, it, is a, it is attractive to people to seek me out, and I don't mind taking unpopular positions. Um, I, I think I'm building a, a, a slight reputation um, for being a functional disruptor. So, you know, oftentimes at the hospital association, we'll look at, you know, how to resolve a problem. And then, you know, everybody who's been in this business for 20 years comes about it in the same way. And, and I'm the disruptive person in the back going, well, I, you know, isn't the definition of crazy doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome? So why don't we take a different approach? And, and lots of times I, I hold on to my non-healthcare experience and draw down on that, that knowledge and kind of say, maybe we should do it a different way. And often it doesn't result in us doing it that way, but what it does do is provoke the thought to come up with a better solution. And so some of my peers um, will call me up and, you know, what do you think? And, and like any group of like-minded folks, um, you know, there are smaller groups and, and there's probably a group of five CEOs in New Hampshire that we exchange emails or phone calls on a regular basis. How do you do this? And, you know, and, and I'm, I'm connected in probably three or four different of those micro groups. And, and, and those are the people that I reach out to when I need help. Okay. So let's, uh, let's close on this uh, question then. Um, what advice do you have for people who are just starting a career in healthcare administration? Uh, what should they be doing um, to be successful? What should they be reading? Uh, maybe listening to, other than, of course, uh, Health Leader Forge. Uh, talking to, who should they be talking to? What, what organizations should they belong to? A couple of tenets that I have. I, I think it's incumbent upon all healthcare leaders to give back to your profession. So join a professional organization. I personally will tell you that ACHE is the premier professional society in healthcare. They're well known for that. Um, uh, it's crazy not to join. It's relatively affordable. Um, the education is, is amazing and you will meet people and gain experiences that you just can't quantify. Um, I think equally that we need to give back to our community and whether that's your time, money, or both, it doesn't matter if it's a church group, the school board, a rotary club, whatever it is, you need to give back to the community substantially, not just, okay, I donate to this effort every year. You need to be seen and you need to advocate and you need to educate in the community about what it is to be a healthcare professional. For, for young executives and, and senior executives alike, volunteer for everything. You know, you have someone coming out of school, they have a limited amount of experience and the only way that you're gonna get more experience is, is to just do it. So volunteer for every assignment, committee, project, anything that you can. You need to have a clear path. What do you wanna do? Do you wanna be in operations? Do you wanna be in planning? Do you wanna be in quality? Do you wanna be a clinician? Figure that out 
and then volunteer for as much as you can in that direction, but never be afraid to stop and say, I guess I really don't want that. Maybe I'll go in a different direction. But volunteer like crazy. Don't ask for the money up front. Volunteer, show that you can do it. And then once you do it competently, the money, the promotion, the other opportunities will come. So many young executives focus on the money part and say, well, I'll do this, but you got to pay me. And that's really the wrong attitude because there's probably someone else who can do it better for the same or less money. So that was the secret that I had. I was annoying. I had volunteered for everything. Um, the first physician practice that I ever managed, my boss told me no. I had no experience managing physician practices and he wasn't going to give it to me. And so I pestered him and then I started talking to the physicians. And I made it their idea and so they went and told the CEO and, and presto, I got the job. And I didn't take an extra cent for it because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And so if I failed, then I could just step back and wouldn't have to be worried about what they invested in me outside of time. By, by just volunteering to do it, once I proved I could do it, then it, then it became a lock, then I got the money and the title and, and the next growth opportunity came. So you, you have to volunteer. And um, go, go to work, I think the last thing is go to work and never forget that everybody in your organization came to work with the same idea to do a good job and to help people. And so you take that adage of don't judge until you've walked a mile in their shoes. If you're having trouble with, a, with a, an associate of yours or another department, assume that they're not trying to be difficult, that there's something going on in their life or their department and try to understand what that is before you judge and say they're lazy, they're incompetent, you know, I'm not important to them. 98 times out of 100, you'll find that um, they really do have the best of intentions and something that you didn't know about was going on. And, and you'll go a long way. And people will seek you out as an ally when you hand out that olive branch first and you take the time to understand how difficult their life is instead of trying to make them understand how difficult yours is. Good advice. Thank you for the interview today. Thank you for being part of the Health Leader Forge community. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It was a great pleasure. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll see you again in about two weeks.